Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, hello, and thanks for listening. I hope you'll be encouraged as we play a recording from our 2018 Leaders Retreat. And here is Julie Persuell shares about God's faithfulness in her life, despite unexpected circumstances. I think you'll be strengthened as you hear how God met and deepened her relationship with Him, especially when she experienced disappointment. The thing I need you to know is that I have an amazing Savior. And he's the one that I really want to talk to you about this morning, okay? Um, What a privilege it is to do this. I am so aware of how kind he has been to me. I am overwhelmed by the mercy he has shown me because I truly was one without hope. I was lost in this world. I'm overwhelmed that he would choose me to be his daughter. Still blows me away after all these years. So I thought, what is it that truly is important for you to know about me? Is it that I was born into a family of unbelievers or that I'm the oldest of three daughters? My younger sisters will make sure you know that. That my parents divorced when I was seven. I'm told I took on the role of mother even at that young age. Is this important for you to know? In God's mercy, I was the first in our family to respond to the gospel at the beginning of my teen years. So from then on, I simply wanted to marry and get on with God, get on with his work. All I've ever wanted to be was a mother. In fact, I loved children so much that when I was 17, I totally intended on starting an orphanage. Is that the most important thing you should know about me? Or that I love to have a plan. I love to be in control of how things go in my life. I feel very strongly about how things should be and how I want life to look. I planned to be married by the time I was 22, have four kids by the time I was 28, um, and then have them out the door by the time I was 48. Okay? So, well, I instead didn't even get married till I was 28, and then... That was six years after my relationship with Jeff. It took us six years to get married. Um, But we eventually did get married. And uh, with the recessional, uh, they played the Hallelujah Chorus as loud as I've ever heard it played. And people were standing up in standing ovation and clapping as hard as I've ever heard people clap at a wedding. Um, And I'm thinking it was because they had endured those six years with us. It was um, quite a relationship. Uh, We can tell you about that another time, because when you have, like, a really long time, you'd have to come do a retreat at our place for for you to have time for that. So now it was time for children to come. But instead of, there came a season of waiting and waiting and waiting some more. For several years, Jeff and I tried to have children. Many doctors' visits and tests confirmed that there might be an issue It seemed that everyone from caring friends to total strangers had advice for us. We tried almost everything that was suggested to us. Year after year, we watched and rejoiced as our friends welcomed each of their children into their families. And during that time, many would pray for us. We received prophecies 
prophecies from people about God giving us children and the details about those children. And I say that because a lot of them were, you know, they were just dear folks that had a dear desire to see us blessed. But they didn't come to pass at that time and in that way. Um, when I was single, during a time of private prayer and praise, the Lord impressed on, upon me a powerful picture. I was worshiping him on my knees, and I saw a picture of two little girls before me, and it, his spirit seemed to say, you are to raise up a family of worshipers who will worship me in spirit and in truth. And then the statement after that was, the Lord shall fulfill his purposes for you, for me. Well, at the time, I didn't even know that was a verse out of Psalm 138. Later that day, um, a lady approached me and shared that verse with me. And that's when I learned that it was from Psalm 138. So many encouragements came, but children did not. After five years of trying to conceive, one night we were at a party Every single couple there was either carrying their newborn or they were um, pregnant. Every conversation was about parenting. I decided to join some of the guys who were watching a sporting event on the TV. I thought, okay, I'll go and hang with them for a few minutes. Uh, well, I got there. They're talking about kids and parenting, every one of them. Um, <clears throat> to my, well, I couldn't seem to escape the feeling that night was I just couldn't seem to escape what I did not have, that feeling. And so at home that night, as Jeff and I lay in bed, we, were, we expressed the tenderness that was in our souls about our disappointments that we still didn't have children. We could relate to the psalmist cry, How long, O Lord? How long? Jeff led us in prayer, and the Holy Spirit seemed to say, Ask me for more grace. So we cried out to God that he would indeed pour out more grace as we waited on his goodness and his timing. He gave us grace, and wait, we did. After seven years of marriage, the Lord interrupted our lives and Jeff's banking career, and we moved to Chicago for Jeff to attend Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which meant no more money, no more insurance, no more medical treatments. So for that three years, that's the way it was. And during those years, friends all around us uh, received the fruit of their womb. I remember one seminary student having her ninth child while she was there. I thought, okay, we're just asking for one here. <laughs> we kept waiting. After seminary, we moved to Gaithersburg, Maryland, settled into our new home, and our new church, and Jeff's new place of ministry. And I thought, surely now I will get pregnant. Seemed we were finally home. I was a pastor's wife. We had medical insurance again. Of course, this is why the Lord had us wait on children. It's until we got to this place. Three more years passed. My biological clock that Jeff mentioned last night was ticking away. Still no more pregnancies, only waiting. Waiting can be uh, hard. Waiting on the Lord can be hard sometimes, can't it? 
Everyone is waiting on something, aren't we? Marriage, children, a home, a job, change in difficult circumstances, relationship to be restored, loved one to repent, healing from a long-standing affliction. Waiting is especially difficult when what you're waiting for is a good thing. We can be tempted to doubt God when our circumstances don't seem consistent with God's character and promises. Our years of waiting for children did not make sense to me. Our desire was a good one. Our desire seemed to line up with Scripture. Children were a gift from God. We felt God had spoken to us specifically that he would give us children. I thought God had spoken to me that he made me to be a mother. I was to raise up a family of worshipers. But our circumstances didn't line up with what we thought. I wanted to ask you, what is it that you're waiting for right now? What fills your thoughts day and night? What are you crying out to God for? Well, God in his mercy doesn't leave us alone in our waiting. And so today, I'd like us to look at some words from the book of Lamentations. Words with which I believe God desires to strengthen us for the road ahead. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. It's a passage that has come to be very meaningful to me over the course of these many years, and one I'm guessing that is very familiar to you. And I'm admitting right off off at the start here, Lamentations is not the first book that comes to mind for a woman's retreat talk. Although these words are familiar, they're drawn from a book that recounts a prophet's response to the judgment of God. Lamentations is a divinely inspired record of human pain. The prophet Jeremiah witnessed the absolute devastation and demise of Jerusalem. There was death, there was exile, and the once proud capital of Judah, the city of of David, the home of the temple of God, was reduced to a heap of smoldering rubble. Lamentations is not a happy book. But in the midst of the grief and lament, these verses turn the reader's eyes toward heaven. I'd like to take these minutes to do the same for you. In the midst of our waiting, in the midst of difficult circumstances, there's nothing better we can do than turn our eyes toward heaven. Here's what we find. Let's read it. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is, a good, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In the midst of Jeremiah's darkest hour, God's truth broke into his heart. God provided him a divine perspective that made all the difference. First of all, pay attention to what Jeremiah did. This I call to mind. The divine perspective Jeremiah received depended upon what he called to mind. 
Jeremiah didn't view himself as a victim of his circumstances. He didn't allow himself to be enslaved to his feelings. He took to heart what he knew to be true about God. The Hebrew says that he brought back these things to his heart. He recalled them to his mind. What do we regularly call to mind? Our painful circumstances? Our disappointments? Our nagging questions about unanswered prayers? If that's what we regularly call to mind, we'll be vulnerable to bitterness and resentment and despair. Jeremiah did not do that. In his hour of darkness, he called something else to mind. And this morning, in the midst of our days, or maybe years, of waiting and persevering, of enduring, he invites us to call the same things to mind. So what did he remember about God that changed his heart? Jeremiah remembers three truths about the nature of God. Number one, God's love never ends. Let's read verse uh, 22a. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Here we find one of the great words of the Bible, God's steadfast love. It's one of my husband's favorite words, chesed. The words speak of God's loyal love, his gracious, constant love that acts on behalf of, uh, on behalf of his people. And while our version reads steadfast love, the word actually is a plural. It's multiple, regular, consistent expressions of this steadfast love. Even this judgment was evidence that God was committed to his people. Even when the circumstances seemed bleak, Jeremiah testifies that God had not abandoned his people. The same is true for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. God's love for his people never ceases. It never ends. Our circumstances may change, but God's steadfast love will not. God's love is not an event. It's not a passing phase. It's an enduring part of his nature. God has taken hold of your life, and he will not let go. He's taken hold of your life, ladies. And he will not let go. The second truth that Jeremiah reminds us of is this. God's concern never fails. Let's look at 22b and 23a. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. There's a sense of emotion with this word. It communicates God's heart to us. It comes from the word for womb. Did you know that? I didn't know that. So it evokes the tender care and compassion of a mother for an infant, her infant. And it's a compassion that goes far beyond what is expected or deserved. So God's warm, tender compassion that comes to you when you don't deserve it, it's that mercy that never comes to an end. That mercy never stops meeting you in your pain and your disappointment and even in your sin and your selfishness. 
His mercies never come to an end, ever. In fact, they are new every single morning. Every day greets us with new expressions of God's mercy. In your waiting, remember this about God. He cares for you more than a loving mother cares for her precious child. And in that, in the midst of your disappointments, God wants you to experience that compassion. He wants you to experience that compassion this morning. Right now, you don't even have to wait. Finally, let's talk about the third truth. God's faithfulness never diminishes. 23b says, great is your faithfulness. In the Bible, the basic idea behind faithfulness is firmness or certainty. Strong arms are called faithful arms. Pillars holding up a building are faithful pillars. So when the Bible speaks of God's faithfulness, it's talking about his dependability, the certainty of his promises, the dependability of his support, his rock-solid dependability. His faithfulness is great. Isn't that good news for sinners like you and me? Regardless of how disobedient I can be, regardless how weak my faith is, regardless of how self-focused I can be, often am, God remains faithful. He acts faithfully because he is faithful. So I'd like us to read that passage again out loud together. Okay? You ready? Game? It'll help wake us up also. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's stop there. What a picture Jeremiah gives us of our God. And when, by the Holy Spirit's work, we grasp this picture, when we, like Jeremiah, call this to mind, in the middle of our days, whatever is going on, we call it to mind, something happens. Let's look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah's eyes are no longer fixed on the devastation and the destruction around him. He's no longer preoccupied with his loss or his disappointment. His focus has changed. What he treasures has changed. God himself has become his portion. In the midst of a fallen world, there will always be things we don't understand. There will always be mystery in our circumstances. But there's one thing we can know. God is at work in our lives to give us himself, always. To wean us away from other loves that are competing with his love. Sometimes very, even very good things, gifts from God, they can become our treasure, can't they? They can become our preoccupation. They can become what we worship 
But there really is only one thing that can satisfy our hearts. One thing that can bring us joy and peace regardless of our circumstances, and that is God himself. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 90, 14, Satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love, that I may sing for joy and be glad all my days. Nothing and no one can satisfy but him. So are you satisfied with him? Are you satisfied by him? Are you satisfied in him? The psalmist recognized in Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. How faithful God has been to teach me this precious truth. And I'm still learning even after all these years. So, back to the story. After 13 years of trying to bear children from our own bodies, it occurred to us that perhaps God had a different plan uh, than what we had in mind. There were children being born that needed fathers and mothers, and we were available. So in my mind, I had it all planned out again. Uh, we would adopt darling little girls who would then help me as we adopted our darling little rambunctious little boys that we were going to adopt from other countries where we had been and we thought we would adopt internationally. So we started down that road. But no, instead we found ourselves adopting a precious baby boy from Texas. And he is a Texan from head to toe, even though he only lived there for 17 days. It's in the blood. So after two weeks, we brought him home. And after two weeks, we found out that our baby Samuel had some problems with his heart. He could suffer a stroke and die at any moment. There was a problem with his aorta and a couple of other things going on with his heart. Uh, and so he needed to have surgery. But he needed to be able to be big enough to have the surgery. He made it to five weeks, and then they said, it needs to happen today. So, was God going to take the little one we had waited 13 years for? He had been so faithful to us, he wasn't through with us yet. As they took Samuel to surgery, I was forced to ask the questions, does this little boy belong to me? Or does he belong to God? Was he fashioned for my purposes or for God's purposes? Would I trust God's wisdom and love and kindness even if Samuel did not live? Because it was very possible that he wasn't going to live long. Well, he did. He did live. He's now 17. He's 5'11", I believe, at the last count pushing towards six. He's handsome, seven, 17-year-old. Um, he's a musician, and he's a junior in high school now. And he's the one we got to spend time with this morning on the phone as he was planning his day. Our next adoption was another little boy. More fulfillment, but also more opportunity to trust the Lord. After 17 days of caring for this newborn, the birth mother changed her mind. 
and we had to return him back into her care. Again, God gave the grace we needed to trust him in his wisdom and his goodness. Four months later, another baby boy was presented to us. This time the test came immediately. New facts about the birth mother and father gave us pause. Is this to be our little boy? Is this the one we're to bring home? We knew from the start that as he grew up, there may be complications along the way. Only time would tell. And within two years, it became clear that there were some developmental issues with our younger son, Benjamin. So, dozens of doctor's appointments, tests, MRIs, CAT scans, evaluations, um, diagnoses, autism spectrum, PDD, um, pervasive developmental delays, um, definitely issues with our little Benjamin. So was God still in control? Is this how he wanted me to spend my days? Did we make a huge mistake? Would God allow this to happen to a pastor who already had so many others to try and care for? For two years, I blamed our son's disabilities on his birth mother's foolish behaviors while she was pregnant. Not out loud, of course, only in my heart. I was complaining to God. And I was asking him these frantic questions. I don't know if you do this, but I did. How do we train and discipline a preschooler or a kindergartner who doesn't even understand language? who can't communicate like other normal children? How do we help big brother realize that little brother has some limitations? When is God going to change him or heal him? What if he doesn't change him or heal him? What if he doesn't grow up, graduate from school, get a job, marry a nice girl, have a family, and do all the other things that normal American boys do. What if he needs us to care for him the rest of our lives? And what if we're not around for much of those years of his life? We are old, you know. I think I was, I was 41. Well, I was 43 when he came. This is not what I had planned not what I was thinking. <clears throat> it wasn't how I planned to spend my midlife years. So how would I effectively help my husband in ministry? What about the pastor's college wives and all the meetings that I should be at? What about all the ministry I should be out doing? Why did this happen to him? Why did it happen to us? Until one day, I was reading Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. I'm going to read them for you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In your book were written... Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, before yet there was one of them. I love that. 
the Lord reminded me I fashioned Benjamin. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. It is I who have planned his days, every one of them, and I have planned your days also. Sometimes God will choose for us to go through things that are difficult and to endure things that are painful. The, psalmist, the Psalms refer to them as afflictions. James refers to them as trials. In these moments, some of which may stretch into some, into some lengthy seasons, we will be tempted to question God's wisdom or his love or both. Why didn't God do things the way I would have? Why, didn't he have to ch- why did he have to choose this plan, path? If he really loved me, this wouldn't have happened. Well, Jeremiah had similar questions. Until he remembered. God's love never ends. His concern never fails. His faithfulness never diminishes. Ever. Like many of you, I stand here this morning as a testimony that those things really are true. Throughout these years of waiting and disappointed hopes and redirected plans, God has been at work in my own heart to teach me about himself. He's patiently been adjusting the basis of my joy from my circumstances and plans to him. And he's shown me how much better his plans always are. With each passing year of serving our little Benjamin, he's soon 15 and taller than I am, God has taught us about love, a kind of love I would never have known without this adventure. God's steadfast, immovable, never-ending, hold-you-and-never-let-you-go kind of love. He's writing the truth of Titus 2 on my heart. I've been an older woman called to be an example, even amidst perimenopause when they were younger, and... Now amidst menopause, while they're teenagers, talk about hormones flying. Um, You just be a little fly on our wall. I'm still learning how to love my husband and children. I'm still learning in those testing times to be self-controlled rather than give in to anger. I'm working at home daily, cultivating kindness and submission and respect for my husband, some days more successfully than others. And so I've learned that ministry is not about me. Ladies, it's not about you either. You're pouring your lives out, but you're doing it for some, somebody else. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and what he's doing in the earth. In this generation, this season, it's about him, isn't it? I daily cry out to God for his grace that the word of God might not be reviled, that I might adorn the gospel as I walk out each day. Let me close by asking you a question. What are you more aware of as you begin this new year? What you're waiting on or God's faithfulness? Your disappointments or God's promises? I am in no way minimizing your disappointments or your suffering. Please understand, I know that what I've um, experienced is so mild compared to what many of you have gone through. My disappointment is minor 
compared to the suffering of so many. But we all look to the same place for our only source of security and joy, don't we? We all look to the same place that Jeremiah did, to a loving, merciful, and faithful God. Regardless of our our trial, he and he alone is the one thing that we need, the one that will satisfy. Ladies, we have far more assurance of this faithfulness than even Jeremiah had. There's never been, there never will be a more profound, a more dramatic, a more extravagant display of God's steadfast love and his tender mercy and his towering faithfulness than the cross of Christ Jesus. All of us who are Christians have encountered God's mercy and grace in the gospel. Because we have, we can look back on 2018, we can look upon 2018 and on into the future with confidence knowing that God will remain merciful to us. His steadfast love will be forever ours. He will never, ever fail us, ever. He will accomplish his purposes for us, as we've been rightly taught for our good and his glory. And friends, this really is out of all the things that I've shared this morning, really, he is the most important thing that you should know about me.